0: Hello and welcome to the Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians made possible by Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. I'm Brendan Toffer and it's great to have your company today. This week on the program, Age Stage Medical reporter Damien Flenley returns fresh from telling us that the big issue is health and flu and how we should be vaccinated. Well, next month he puts some time in on the issue of men's health and he says it's important.
1: Call people out. Tell them you don't sound so well. Have you had your GP check-up today? When was your last prostate exam? When was your last bowel cancer check? Blokes need to take this readily and heed this advice. It takes 20 minutes, an hour out of your day that could save your life.
0: Damien Flendy, a little later in the age stage. But first we meet the age discrimination commissioner, Dr. Kay Patterson. Dr Patterson, of course, has been an absolute revelation in the role of the Age Discrimination Commissioner for Australia, and she has been a powerful advocate for older Australians' rights. Well, Dr Kay Patterson began her role as Age Discrimination Commissioner back in July 2016. She's demonstrated, as I said, a very strong interest. In the issues affecting older people throughout her professional life She left school at 15 and then managed a small business She returned to school, went on to university Where she picked up a PhD in psychology and a dip ed as well She then taught for some 11 years Eventually her academic work took her on to the USA Where she studied gerontology And returned to Australia where she taught the courses here Following her returned to Australia she taught at Monash University where she became an absolute stalwart but then moved into politics Following her election to the Senate in 1987, she served on a number of Senate committees and held various shadow portfolios. In 1988, she was appointed as a Parliamentary Secretary. In 2001, appointed to Cabinet and served in the Health and Social Security portfolios. During her time in the Senate, one of her major areas of interest were issues affecting older Australians. She retired from Cabinet in 2006 and from the Senate in 2008. Well, recently I'm delighted to say that Dr. K. Patterson visited the Mornington Peninsula and was guest speaker at the Peninsula Consortium, a group of age sector providers. Well, while down here on the Mornington Peninsula, it was our chance to welcome Dr. K. Patterson to the Age stage studios, the Discrimination Commissioner in our part of the world. A rare opportunity and a chance for us to catch up and have a talk. And so, Dr. K. Patterson, welcome back to the Mornington Peninsula.
2: Um, it's the most beautiful place. As a, as a Victorian, I just love the Morning Peninsula and Mornington Peninsula. I'm delighted to be here.
0: It's fantastic. Um, the consortium meeting, and we'll probably get into some of the issues which was uh, raised today at this special meeting, and that you've taken time to come down and meet with everybody. But I'm particularly interested in you, if we could start there, for, if we could please. Um, advocacy and social justice, these themes that seem to resonate all the way back to your undergraduate years. Why?
2: Well, I have to say that um, as an only child and living in the inner city of Sydney, I was um, sort of the guide group was meeting and I used to go and stand outside the hall when I was 10 and because I started at seven o'clock at night, and the leader rang my mother and said it's not very safe to have her outside. She can't join till she's eleven, um, but we can have her come in and just participate, which I did. And it's been a lifelong love. I um, was in guides, and it gave me an opportunity to meet girls of different ages. And when I was uh, when I was 15, I went up to the most the more senior branch called Rangers, and. I left school as a lot of girls did in those days when I was just before my 15th birthday after year nine and people would go and do nursing or childcare or a primary school teaching. When I look at my um, nieces and nephews who are about 15 I think, oh my godfathers, I was just a baby. And I went to work, I did a business college course and went to work for um, a couple of years and then I was chosen to go on a Girl Guide, Girl Scout exchange to Mexico. All our airfares, everything was paid. My annual salary was fifteen hundred pounds. The airfare was three thousand pounds. It was like winning the lottery, and I went to this event with two girls from nine countries and seven from the United States, and they were all at the University of Milan or the University of, um, you know, Zurich, and they were f- they were amazing girls. And I was the only one who left school. And the two leaders said to me when we finished, we met in our guide world center in Mexico. 120 people came to wave me off because they thought I'd never return. The Aztecs might get me or something. I don't know. So um, I um, as we were, I was leaving, the two leaders said, you need to go back to school. So I came back and worked in a small business managing it for a guide leader who had been in the RAF, and she, in the war, and she had had polio and was quite disabled. And so she wasn't there all the time. So I was an 18-year-old. I was doing quotes I was managing 13 staff. I don't think she was in her right mind to appoint me as the manager, but anyway, she did. She was. And, Great prescience. And, and you'd say, um, somebody would ring and say, I want an envelope for every name in the telephone book, and I'd say to someone, you type a page of dummies, you type a page of P's. I didn't realise that 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 the law of diminishing returns would set in, by the end of the day, they weren't typing as fast as the beginning. I'd say, like, come on, come on, come on. Well, one of the things that she did there was uh, she had... And because I'd been introduced to through guiding, because um, they extended guiding to young children with disability, I'd been exposed through guiding and through ranges to working with children with a disability and participating with them, taking them camping. And she actually would have one person uh, each, all the time who had a disability and give them the opportunity to have exp- work experience at her own cost because she believed that if she hadn't had her business, she would have been out of work. And we would give the person the opportunity and then they'd get a reference and get a job. So I guess I was exposed to those sort of social issues through guiding and through this person. And then I went back and did my last two years of high school in one with enormous support from my grandmother who'd get me up very early in the morning and and have dinner with me and make sure I was in bed to be able to get up very early the next morning. David Hill of ABC fam- fame was sat next to me for the whole year because wow. he was doing his matriculation at the wow, same time. That's... I must catch up with him yeah. sometime and, because we've both...
0: He's a bit of a character.
2: Yeah, we've done interesting stuff mm. since. Anyway, so that led me on to the scholarship um, at uh, at Sydney University where I undertook a degree where I studied psychology and educational psychology and then worked there for a year, and then I came down to do my PhD at Monash. So really guiding played an enormous influence in my life and gave me an experience that um, has been amazing. And that group, mine is one who was killed in a car accident, and a few that dropped off, about 22 of us meet every three years somewhere in the world
0: guiding these days is as, as strong, as big an influence in modern society as it was in your day?
2: I think for the girls who belong, it's it's a great influence, and, and the girls who book, join Scouts now, it gives you a sense of a worldwide friendship. It means that if you move, as many people are highly mobile now, you children can move from one place to the other and still belong to something. Um, I think one of the difficulties is that, and particularly for women, that then uh, many more are working and then we don't have the same um Pool of leaders that that we had, and I think that is an issue.
0: You went on to the United States where you studied as well. Gerontology. Gerontology.
2: It's the study of aging. Well, because it
0: is the study of aging, uh-huh. and I mean, you were also showing sort of great prescience that you should be doing that really in advance of something that we're all talking about and very familiar with at the moment.
2: Well, I was um, after I finished my PhD. I went to work at Lincoln Institute, as it was then, which moved into La Trobe University, but it taught all the allied health professionals: physiotherapists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, nurses, podiatrists, etc. And they were doing a, a lot of child development, and that they didn't. Sorry.
0: We can cut that, can't we? Cool.
2: How do we go back, you say? Well, well,
0: basically, so um, so we'll, we'll just continue on. So basically, you were looking you were looking at your research and you're working in research in the in the younger ages.
2: One of the things that was happening was we were teaching. I was teaching these students. And they were doing a lot of child development, and I said to the clinicians, "But they're doing um, child development. Why don't they do gerontology, the study of aging?" They said, "Oh no, they do geriatrics." Well, geriatrics is about treating sick people. And I said, if you and they said why well, I said, why do they do all this child development? Oh they no need to know about the well older child. And I said, Well don't they need to know about the well successful older person who's aging well so they can actually set that as a standard for rehab, getting people back
0: So what year is this?
2: 1978,
0: 79 So you're sort of predating a, a big discussion we're
2: having at the moment by yeah, some cons- you're on it. Quite a long while ago. <laughs> weren't you? <laughs> yes about 40 years ago, and I, it was very hard, journals used to come by sea, and so to get the most up-to-date literature could take up to three or four months by the time it came from by sea and then went into the libraries. I don't think young people understand now they can go in and get a journal that was published yesterday, and I decided that I would apply for a scholarship. The Kellogg Foundation used to give scholarships. Um, I think they realised we weren't a developing country and stopped doing it, but I got in before they did that. And I got to go to the uh, Michigan University where that was one of the main centres for study of gerontology in America. And I had six months there. And I, while I was there, I did some of their summer school courses and I also started preparing for the courses I hoped to introduce at Lincoln Institute. I then came back to Australia and had um, two, mu- two years here and went back on study leave, to Penn State University in Pennsylvania, which was another centre of gerontology. So, Kate, you're a bit
0: of a strategist. So all this time you were thinking, I'm going to be an academic. When did the politics come into all this? When did that transfer happen?
2: Well, I didn't, and why? Mean, I didn't mean to
0: go into politics. But I mean, it was from this area of study and expertise, it though, wasn't it? happened to me.
2: And then I started introducing courses in, into the gerontology and then I into the, into the courses at Lincoln... And then I thought, we need some postgraduate training. And a physio and an OT and myself also used the material I'd got to to design a course, not just for health science students, but we hoped that it would pick interior designers so that when they were designing a nursing home, for example, they'd take into account some of the psychology, not having it so confusing you can't find your own room. Um, understanding about moving from light to dark.
0: But you see you're miles in advance of everybody else. We're only having these sorts of discussions here now you were you' were amazing, you're well and truly ahead of your time.
2: I like thinking about the future. Awesome. I was very future oriented, and what i what I was doing was saying, let's have these people, let's have the course so we can have clinicians, but can also have other people, town planners and people doing it. We set up the course, <clears throat> um it took us about two and a half, three years. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, we um, we had a first intake, and we we're going to have it every second year. It was so popular; it's it's proceeded every year since. And I've had some lovely experiences of seeing some of my students in a setting. For example, when I was a senator, and I'll tell you how I got to be a senator. But when I was a senator, I was down in um, uh, oh down near Warrnambool at the uh, aluminium factory down there. And there was one of my students. And when they did a study of why people were taking sick leave in the um, smelter, it was mainly to try and find out about aged care because there was not nothing on the internet. There was no internet. And people would take time off to go and find out how they could get their parent looked after. And uh, she said, well, they've employed me as the health and safety nurse, but also I actually run a program so that people can have access to the people who can tell them about aged care in our community centre in the smelter rather than having a day off. So they actually reduced their sick leave by having someone dealing with it. So I thought, I never imagined one of my students would be in a, working in a mm. smelter, um, looking after staff, telling them, helping them part time, otherwise she was doing human resources work, about how to care for their older parents and what services are available. But I was um, very friendly with um, Lorraine Elliott, who um, went on to be a state member of parliament, Mm -hmm. and she was in guiding with me. And she said to me, you ought to um, come and talk to the party, you should join the party because you're interested in stuff that's really relevant, age, older people, education, health. And I said, look, I'm running guide, you know, programmers and guides, I'm teaching at night, I don't want to get involved. And she said, You'll get steel in your heart if you sit on the fence. She was a very dear friend, um, loved the Morning Peninsula. She was a great fan of the Morning Peninsula. Peninsula. And she kept hammering me and saying, Well, come and speak to the Liberal Party at least. I did come and talk about implications for the future of an ageing population, what we needed to do now. That was back in the early, late 1970s, early 80s. And a lot of the women who'd started the party with Menzies were still there. And they came and me said, you need to stand for Parliament. And I sort of laughed at them and I said, well, you know, I'm an academic and I'm interested in mm-hmm. these sorts of things. They said, no, you're interested in the things that are federal issues and you should be in the Senate. Margaret Guilford will retire at some stage and we want to back you. And they had been through me like a dose of salts. So they knew all about me, what I did, what I was interested in. Had been to guiding to make sure I was, you know, really was doing what I said I was doing and they gave me a huge amount of support. I laughed, I I didn't think, I I just thought they were mad. And so as a very, um, as a tyro, I entered Parliament in 1987. Mr Halfpenny and I fought for the last spot on the ticket and it was the few votes per electorate that got me there. I did say in the Made My Maiden speech that even those on the other side might have been happy they were shortchanged.
0: Mr Halfpenny, 1987, that was then. This is the Age Stage, brought to you uh, by PFM on 98.7, 98.3. Our special guest today is the Age Discrimination Commissioner, the Honourable Dr Kay Patterson. Kay, we're going to take a little bit of a break. When we come back, maybe we'll get into that political career and then how you reimagined yourself going forward. Thank you. Guest today is Age Discrimination Commissioner, the Honourable Dr Kay Patterson, who in the first stanza was telling us all about her formative years academia. It's 1987 now and Kay is representing. She's in the Senate and um, she's taken her place amongst in the Pantheon. Um, how did you enjoy that experience Kay?
2: Well it was old Parliament House mm. and uh, it was in the days when we had no facts. Um, we had uh, a typewriter with a four page memory and my room was so small the printer was outside underneath the stairs because it didn't fit, and I was in the smallest office because you got the last office, and when I had people come to visit, sometimes I had to rotate on the chairs because there wasn't enough space for them. That was an interesting time because you actually met people, you you had to get out of your office so you met people. In the new Parliament House, the offices had their own bathrooms, their own toilets, their own little kitchenette, and I think people got a bit more isolated and didn't meet as many people from the other side. Mm. So I think the dynamics changed. But I had a year there and I was grateful for that year. Um, it was hard because I hadn't come with a political background. So, so what are
0: you doing? You're networking, you're making alliances, you're seeing where the strategies are, and, and are you... Just ahead? learning the system, Yeah. you
2: know, I mean... And, it, and
0: in terms of what about more responsibility for you?
2: Well, it was, well, it was it's overwhelming, you know, it's a huge responsibility, great honour, but it's a huge responsibility. But there's no, You don't. you have to learn on the job. And we didn't have um, – now they've got televisions in their rooms, but you'd be listening to a debate that would be on the dairy levy bill mm. and you'd go to the bathroom, you'd come back and they'd be talking about education. You'd think, well, how did that happen? Because, well, what bill are they talking about? And you'd have to divine from what they were saying what mm. bill they were talking about. So now they've got televisions and it has a thing underneath that says debating the such and such bill, it's much easier. And you can see who's talking. You had to learn, the, remember, their voices and learn all the procedures of the Senate. And uh, some people come having been staff members, that's an advantage, but you don't want a whole parliament of um, professional career people who've been to university, haven't worked or worked in a union and then gone to be a staffer and then gone on. I think we need people. When I first went in, you know, we had um, people from the Labour Party who'd been th- who had farms, you know, Karen was a chicken farmer, um, the Peter Walsh was a big wheat farmer on our side we had doctors and farmers and people. I think that the Parliament now is much more homogenous, that there are fewer people with those sort of long backgrounds. I think coming in as I did it in my early 40s, I came with a background of teaching, a background of tra- having travelled. So we then moved up to the new Parliament House. We were in opposition for a very long while and uh, I learnt and actually focused very much on stuff affecting older people.
0: Indeed, so John Howard recognised that, in 87 he's, he's already made you, what was it, um, were you shadow minister for, for senior citizens at that stage, or was that Houston?
2: No, that was uh, Houston, yeah. uh, it was uh, uh, in 80s, in, a bit later, okay. I was a, a backbencher for quite a long one, then I was shadow in aged care, because I decided you really had to concentrate So this on was this. the
0: area that you'd already decided that you were going to specialise, it was your background academically as well I guess. And That's it was, right, uh,
2: and that was my passion. Yeah. And, and I chose things, for example, I was quite concerned that the public service had a compulsive retirement age. I couldn't understand why that had happened, given that people were living longer and people were working longer outside. I'd seen my father, who had a small uh, manufacturing business, and he was still working um, at that stage, well past 65. So I thought, I think we really need to... Well, it wasn't quite... It was about 62 when I got into Parliament, but I saw him working and never intending to retire. Yep. And it was a challenge because I put up a private member's bill, um, which was not... Uh, the government has a right to bring it on. It wasn't brought on by the then government. Then the parliament was prorogued and I brought it up again. And then I made sure it was in our policy. And and when we came into government in 1996, that was beginning to be implemented. By 1999, we had um, they eliminated the compulsory time age. And it seemed mad that you could retire from the armed forces as you know lieutenant colonel and you couldn't serve voluntarily on the muse on the um uh war
0: memorial board well i i also think again in the education department with some you know with the way that the pensions were working out people were taking that 64 11 retirement i mean this
2: four eleven i think 54 this
0: amazing wealth of talent these extraordinary teachers which, you know and we were losing that that's we, right we were losing that investment in our kids' future um, all these anomalies you were pointing all this out to people two decades ago. Um, you left parliament in what 2007
2: well I, well I was very fortunate to be appointed as the uh, a minister in the Howard government as Minister for health. that's funny most probably the only portfolio that everyone sees affects every single person it's mm. a challenging job. And then I was minister for Family and Community Services, but before that, I served as a parliamentary secretary in Immigration, which was a great apprenticeship. And then, I, and then at this, at that halfway through that, I was appointed to Alexander Downer in Foreign Affairs. And so I was had, I had two bosses. I said, no man can serve two masters, but it seemed like a female senator could serve two male ministers. Oh, that's
0: the skill <laughs> you see, Kay Patterson, isn't it? That is the skill for So, sure.
2: but that was a great learning experience. And then I went on to, as I said. Be a minister, so I had 21 years in the Senate. Wow,
0: and then you decided to leave.
2: Well, I was getting very tired. Uh, it's it is. I, I don't think people realise. You know, you go up to Parliament and nobody's there because they're on the break. And the, the the press say, oh, they're on their winter break. It's actually busier on your winter break because I used to do the had to go around the whole of Victoria, whereas you sleep in the same bed when, at least when you're in in Canberra. So, you, the winter break is being out. I'd go to visit nursing homes. I'd get to find out what their problems so were. So, you're
0: getting back into this area again then?
2: Oh, yes. I, I visited nursing homes. So, you
0: were anticipating around 2007, 2008, when you're getting out of Parliament, you would get back into this area? Of oh, age, no, 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 no. no, no. no.
2: This was one of the whole time I was in right. the Senate, but I was pursuing issues affecting older people. When I left the Senate, I was offered a, an appointment at Monash, a part part-time, a, a time part-time professor appointment doing leadership training with young people which I loved it was a five-year paid appointment and I started going back to a lot of my voluntary work I've joined the board of Interplast which sends plastic surgeons all around the Asia Fanta- of
0: the city. Fantastic work.
2: And that was a very small organization which had grown and really needed some reform in terms of its um, governance so I did the Institute of Company Directors course which was very hard when you're not a lawyer or an mm-hmm. accountant But I learnt heaps, and that helped me to to direct and help the the interplast grow and and have governance. We we didn't have risk assessment. We were sending doctors to the Philippines and Pakistan and places, and I thought we needed a risk assessment committee. And I got some confidence and learning from doing that Institute of Company Directors course. I was also asked to be on the Brockhoff Foundation. Mr. Brockhoff. Had biscuit factory here
0: he d- he in uh, New South Wales.
2: People don't know about Brockhoff, but he left, in today's terms, about 50 million dollars, which the board manages. Um, and we have about four or five people who are really very experienced in investment, and four or five of us who are more experienced in doling out the money. And we and he left it for uh, older people, the community, children, and medical research. And it's a wonderful committee. And and we and we uh, don't have a lot to give out, but we do try and make every dollar
0: count. Dr. Kay Patterson, the Age Discrimination Commissioner, is our special guest on this week's edition of The Age Stage. Thank you very much indeed for your company today. When we come back, we chart Dr. Kay Patterson's political career and her resolve to do more in the aged care sector. A reminder that this is The Age Stage. We're coming to you from the Bendigo Bank Steers right here in Mornington. The Age Stage is proudly supported by and sponsored by the Australian Unity Group and Aftercare Australasia. We'll be back in just a moment with more. This is PFM, and you are listening to the Age Stage, program that we have designed for older Australians, and we are supported in these endeavours by our friends at Aftercare Australasia and also Australian Unity. Well, in part one of uh, the program today, we were speaking to the Age Commissioner, Dr. Kay Patterson, and let's resume that conversation. As I was saying earlier on, Dr. Kay Patterson recently visited the Morning Peninsula, and was guest speaker at the Peninsula Consortium, a group of age sector providers. And, of course, while she was down here, a chance for us to have a bit of a word. Okay, before the break, we were talking about an extraordinary career, um, which ended up in politics, of course, and then on to this more philanthropic position where you're in. What what were you doing? How were you going to refashion yourself? What were you thinking at the end of your political
2: career? Well, when I finished and left the Senate in 19... Oh, golly, 2008? Yes, it was. I was going to say 19, 2008. Hmm. I I was planning to travel and um, spend some time with my nieces and nephews in Sydney. I don't have my own children, but I helped rear my brothers and, uh, and do this job I had at Monash, and that finished after five years, but I got an honorary appointment after that. And I was doing lots of charity stuff and... Um, and enjoying meeting friends and doing catching up on things I'd missed when I was locked up in the Parliament. And this job I saw was advertised. Susan Ryan was the first Age Discrimination Commissioner. I think there's no other in the world, so Susan and I see ourselves as, as two sort of standout, only, only ones in the world. But the job was advertised and I thought, you know, that's interesting. It's all the stuff I've been interested in I might just apply, because it was a proper formal public mm. service application. It's not philanthropic. I do get paid. It's kind okay. of voluntary. And um, so I applied, went to an interview. I hadn't done an interview except pre-selections ever, and uh, thought, oh, well, that was an interesting interview. And then I was rung by the Attorney-General, and he said, we'd like you to be the Age Discrimination Commissioner, which is, which is um, out of the Australian Human Rights Commission in Sydney. But I try and spend as much time out of Sydney because I think we don't want to be Sydney-centric. So I still live in Victoria, travel up to Sydney and then travel around Australia. And we don't have a lot of resources. At that stage, when I first started, I had one staff member and a a secretary. So I decided to cut my coat to fit my cloth and chose three areas. I chose that I'd be looking at um, Susan Ryan's Willing to Work report about the need to get older people, people who want to keep working, able to keep working. The second one was about this issue of elder abuse, particularly financial abuse of people uh, taking their parents' money, or um, in a, you know, inadvertently, or sometimes very, very um, pre- predetermined and, and intentional. And the third thing was I'd done a big review for the Victorian government on, on people uh, or new groups, emerging groups of homeless people, and when I gave the report to the then government, I said the two emerging groups are young people moving from out-of-home care and if I hadn't taken this job I would have pursued that as an issue. I think there are some solutions and some things we can do. Sending someone out at 18 is not on. You know, young people now are not leaving home. Our, their adolescence is stretched out. They're not leaving home till 25, 26, 27. Then they come back again um, and they've got these kids leaving at 18. because the often the foster families can't afford to keep them for nothing. Some do and do it out of the the relationship they've developed with that young person and I'd taken a bit of an interest in what was happening through this housing thing I'd done and the other emerging group were women at risk of homelessness, women who were um, working, renting and then the moment they got sick or had some episode in their life they suddenly found themselves homeless and a lot of them are hidden, they're um, sleeping in cars, they're couch surfing with friends, staying with friends, they were out where they're welcome. So there's the three primary issues although there are some little bits and pieces I'm concerned about when the post office shifts letterboxes and I've got an appointment to see Christine Holgate from Australia Post about what we can do about that because it's older people and people with disability who are affected when you you know, pull down and take away a post box. And the other thing is I've been on about people being charged to receive a bill, you know, a dollar fifty to get a bill from a, a gas company. It's not on...
0: Well, not only for older people as well. Um, the issue of advocacy then, um, you saw the political process at work. How did you define your role within this? And did you have to have a very strong voice? Did, did you think that age and ageing was being recognised when you got this job ten years ago?
2: I didn't get... No, the job's only had two years. Right. So I had this big gap from when I left Parliament right. where I was doing my own thing and having a wonderful time and then I got back in the saddle again But I did feel like it was getting back in the saddle. I thought, I'm back where I feel comfortable. I'm back where I know this area. And I think but, but all of a sudden the,
0: legislator, the legislators have caught up with you to a degree. They're beginning to realise that there's some big changes in Australian society and the stuff that you've been talking about two decades ago is now beginning to hit everybody. It's beginning to hit the wall. Um, did, did you have to have a loud voice? Did you have to be a very powerful advocate in this area?
2: Well, I think I still am. I'm, and I've got, this, I've got a platform. Is it, is
0: it necessary? Are people? Be, is, the, is the message beginning to get through that there are people in their 60s couch surfing, for instance?
2: Well, I think that some people are aware and other people aren't aware and sometimes it's a problem. They think, well, how can we deal with this? It's so big. Um, the elder abuse issue two years ago was was not very well spoken about or it wasn't high profile. I think your listeners will now have heard more in the paper, more on the news, more on the radio, more on the television. And the Attorney-General issued... Oh, instructed the the, um, Australian Law Reform Commission to do a report on elder abuse, mainly on the law. That was brought down last year. There's been a real effort and the Attorneys General across Australia are working together on a national plan to address elder abuse. So that has really ratcheted up and, you know, a lot of your older listeners will um, know people whose children have harassed them for money or, you know, what we're trying to teach people is if, you, if your family say well, well come and live with us mum and we'll build the granny flat under the house when we're building our new house that you should have a formal agreement because if that marriage breaks down they can actually ask you to leave and you've got no recourse because you've got no written evidence that you produced money and so what one of my roles is to is to educate as many people as possible that they need agreements they need to have a power of attorney and have thought it through they need to know what their rights are And they need, their power of attorney needs what their responsibilities are. It's not about saying who you can see and who you can't see. It's about helping you manage your money. And so people need to have their documents in place. And they need, if they lend money to their family, either for accommodation or a loan, they need to also check with Centrelink to make sure it's not affecting their pension. Um,
0: They do indeed. And there has been a great deal of elder abuse, particularly on this program over the last little while. are you the voice of the older Australian in the political system? Is that how you see and define your role?
2: I I said to someone, it's a number of roles, and sometimes I feel like a bumblebee. Not bumbling, but I feel like a little bee. There are so many exciting things happening around Australia, really innovative, just sometimes small. For example, I went to the Australian... Uh, the. Um, Australian Capital Territory Law Centre and they showed me a little bookmark that they had and on the little bookmark it says, you know, do you feel safe? Do you think decisions about your finances are being made in your best interest? If you've got questions, if you said no, please contact the law centre. Where do they send those? They give them to the mobile library to put in every book they give to someone because the people who are most risk of of abuse are isolated Mm. And I thought, what a cheap, simple way of getting to people who mightn't go into a bank, who mightn't go um, to a a probers meeting and hear someone talking about elder abuse, and how valuable this was. Now, somebody in Western Australia doesn't know that that little centre is doing what I think is a very innovative thing. And so what I try and do is to talk whenever I go to places about all the exciting things that are happening, to try and get them... um, replicated in other places, so that's luck like being a little bee pollinating. I think having been a Member of Parliament, and I talked to Susan Ryan about this, gives you an understanding about how the system works. And I know how to ask for an interdepartmental committee to be set up to do something. I know what buttons I can push to get something done. The Attorney got up at a big meeting on elder abuse just at the beginning of this year, He'd just been appointed. I made sure two days after he was appointed that I had an appointment with him within the following two weeks. And he said at this meeting, Kay came to see me and she left my office and I was in no doubt that elder abuse would be one of my priorities in this appointment, which gave me credibility in the group, which made them, when I was onto the case. And so had I not been a Member of Parliament, I most probably wouldn't have been there quite so quickly and realising how I could actually use that to actually get and raise the profile. Indeed, I was
0: wondering that as well, because given your experience in that political process, I mean, I'm sure there are a number of ministers in the cabinet level that have a series of um, agendas that they want to get there. How do you give voice to this particular one as well? Go and see them
2: very quickly.
0: (laughs) You've probably answered that very well. Um, Kay Patterson, it's lovely talking to you. We've got uh, one more break to go, and then what I want to do is probably talk to you about the future for Australia, some of the demographics, some of the numbers are pretty frightening, and how do we future proof Australia as we move forward into the next uh, two or three decades. You're listening to The Age Stage right here on RWPFM. We'll be back with more in a moment. This is RWPFM. You're tuned up to the AIDS stage each and every Thursday morning right here on RWPFM. Don't forget the podcast as well. It is made possible by the Village Glen On Call Living for that uh, regional experience and also the Village Baxter. We're speaking with the AIDS Discrimination Commissioner, the Honourable Dr. Kay Patterson. We're into the final stanza. And, hey, you were talking about, or to the consortium down here on the Mornington Peninsula today, and... Um, about some of the demographics, some of the numbers, some of the very confronting numbers that we as Australians have to get used to going forward, that life expectancy is is just rocketing and that many of us can probably expect to live up to a century. Implications in terms of how we adjust to that, how we care for ourselves and how we provision for the future. This is obviously vexing your mind a little bit.
2: Yes, and I think we don't have to see it as frightening or overwhelming, and it's been an issue I've been pursuing for 40 years. I think we have to be alert and aware. Um, we have to understand that life expectancy is increasing, and people can say to you, you know, the number of people over 65 will double by 2055, and numbers like that. But I think that as I said today to the people here at the, at the symposium, that one of the things that made me think about it was that I was doing a project with a young woman, and she's doing it in New South Wales now, but 100 young people painting 100 centenarians, and to do the opening, I went back and had a look at some data. In 1976, there were 276 centenarians. They were rare. 276 in the whole of Australia. Now they're over 4,800 or so, and by the year 2045, they expect to be about 44,000. That just shows you how... I think that's a real illustrative of how quickly and how long people are living and so what we have to do is to get people thinking about planning for that planning um, how their income is going to last uh, planning how their friendships are going to last one of the issues is that when my parents were older they didn't make friends with your with my friends now older people have friends who are 20 and 30 years younger and friends who are 20 and 30 years older and I think you can learn from older people and you can learn from the younger people and they can learn too. So I think because isolation is one of the, and loneliness is one of the big factors. And I think only this week there was some research that was done that showed that more and more people are lonely. So you, there's a, a, a two people who've written a book called The Hundred Year Life. Um, they come out of a, a London, one of the London ac- institutions. One's a psychologist, one's an econ- economist. And they've said you need to invest financially, but you also need to invest in social relationships and friendships and family. So it's about getting people to think about a 100-year life, but it's also thinking about how do we manage that because as we increase our age, the number of younger people are decreasing relatively. So we've now got about 4.7% of our people under uh, working with... Uh, Relative to, I'm not doing this very well, no. there are about 4.7% of people working uh, uh, compared with the number of people over 65. In uh, about 30 years' time, there'll be 2.7 people working for people over 65.
0: So the pressure is on to keep people in the workforce longer, a little bit like your dad.
2: Yep. Well, it's not only just for that reason, but we know that if we increase the number of people working who are over 55, it would have a $33 billion per annum impact on the economy. But, Kay, are the the
0: employers getting it? Because we're still seeing in our area um, some, some discrimination from employers. Are they going to get it? Is this part of your job to go out there and start sort of smacking tabletops and saying, listen, guys, you've got to get these older Australians into the workforce? Well, don't smack tabletops.
2: No, but, of course you do are um, much more discreet than Susan that. Susan Ryan did this wonderful report called Willing to Work with a number of recommendations. For exa- uh, And I think that, for example, the state and federal governments should set an example of employing older people uh, because you can't ask private enterprise to do, and not-for-profits to do what the government's not doing. So... I've been talking to um, various people in departments and we're, we're going to have a new um, public service commissioner and I've just done a submission to a review of the public service and I'll be marching off to see the new public service commissioner two weeks after he or she's appointed to talk about here's some things you can do. You're on to
0: them Patterson. <laughs> <must> have, these <laughs> poor people, they don't, do. even get in, they don't even get
2: into this. And profiling businesses that have really been very successful in employing older people, but I think we need some deep changes, and like when I was teaching health science students, I wanted to teach them and expose them to well-functioning older people. I wanted to get um, young people who were doing human resources courses, and it's not to say that they're ageist, it's just that they haven't lived long enough. When I was 25, someone who was 32 seemed old, and it's no different now. When you're 65, 72 doesn't seem very old. So, what I've been doing is working with the Human Resources Institute. we're now doing a survey of businesses to see and try and identify more businesses that are doing and best practice. We're also working with them to look at how we can do some training units for people training as human resource Institute human resource um, um, professionals but also to bring in some professional development for human resources um, uh, current mem- people so they're uh, continuing professional. I'm starting to get tired because I'm hobbling the words.
0: You've been you've been talking uh, a long time. Uh, you've had me
2: talking all morning. But anyway, I'm sorry, listeners. Yep. I've, I've done a you've done a, a wonderful talk. Job. But I just want to tell one more thing. Yep. The other thing is that the Institute of Company Directors. I'm a member, and I've actually just written an article which was in the June magazine about directors needing to save their human resources people, "What are we doing?" Because as the baby boom drops off, there'll be fewer people coming in. So we need to keep those people working not only for their own sake, because they're better, they've got more money, their health's better, they've got more money for their retirement, They, especially men keep their social networks going for longer, and we need to actually encourage that, but it also has an impact on the economy. So every angle I can tackle, whether it's the public service, showing the example, profiling best practice, getting to the Human Resources Institute. Getting directors to ask the questions, it's a multi-pronged approach to raise the profile of the benefits of employing older people.
0: You're in a very good place. You must be pretty happy with the way you've come because 40 years ago you were sort of theorising about some of these issues. You were speculating about this time back then as a young undergraduate. And here you are, shoulder to the wheel, really having a crack on our behalf.
2: I'd say an example. I turned 74 in November. That's outrageous, Kate. You look fantastic. <laughs> and, and so I'm working for, well, more than full-time, Yeah. but it's, it's a passion. I've got a passion, and I think for some reason all my bits of my life have come together in this job, and I feel like I know about aged care. Or not I, don't, I haven't kept up with everything, but all the areas have come together, and I feel as though I can bring that experience into this job for the short time I've got it, which is five years, and I want to make it and impact while
0: I've got the job. Dr Kay Patterson the Age Discrimination Commissioner has been our special guest on this week's edition of the Age Stage and given the energy that uh, Kay Patterson brings to the job don't be surprised if that contract of hers is not renewed in 2021. This is the Age Stage when we come back Damien Flenley, when he joined us last week he was banging on about the flu and how we must go out and get those flu shots well this week His big topic is men's health. No matter what your age, very important that you consider it. Men's Health is a national day next week or next month as well. We'll find out more when Damien Flanley and the Aged Age continues and returns after this break time now to invite Damien Flanley back into the Age Stage studios. He's our resident medical expert, keeps a bit of an eye on things medical for us and this month of June is very, very important as well, particularly in the area of men's health because I believe this month we're
1: going to be celebrating men's health. Damien, tell us a little bit more about it. That's right, you know, in the middle of June here from the 10th to the 16th of June is Men's Health Week, a regular uh, sort of yearly format where we get to just focus on particular issues. One and this one being all about keeping boys and men healthy. Um, to know your GP.
0: So, traditionally, of course, in the, in the male area, we tend to push back against the quacks, the doctors, we don't really present, we don't go down and talk to our doctor as regularly as we probably should.
1: Look, I think men in in our vernacular, we um, we tend to push against each other. We we tend not to encourage each other to look after ourselves. We maybe uh, be a bit boisterous and maybe a bit jovial about things that are probably quite serious, and we need to take quite readily in our current manhood uh, support of each other. So, what are we doing for men's health? What exactly are the initiatives? Well, look, at the moment, we're encouraging people to go and see a doctor regularly. I mean, it's the one fact that blokes tend not to do. I mean, people well, should be seeing their GP twice a year especially men over the age of 20 even the young men getting to see them once a year uh, is to go and see a doctor twice a year to check up on your blood sugars check up on your numbers your blood pressure your sugars your weight um uh, your cholesterol and what lifestyle factors you're taking on and what risk factors you have as a genetic so so the initiative this year is just basically general men's health and just get done and just get familiar with your local gp huh Exactly. Encouraging males to be friendly with their GP. And I say friendly in the context that you won't go and tell a stranger about your personal private parts or issues, whether you're sad or depressed, um, but you will tell someone you trust and respect. So if you have a good rationale, a good support mechanism, a good rapport with your specialists, your GPs, your friends, call people out. Tell them you don't sound so well. Have you had your GP check-up today? When was your last prostate exam? When was your last bowel cancer check? Blokes need to take this readily and heed this advice. It takes 20 minutes, an hour out of your day that could save your life.
0: Are we seeing any trends in men's health? Is there there a big killer? I mean, we hear a lot, of course, about prostate and the intervention there as far as
1: medical science is concerned. But there are any other alarming trends that we're seeing at the moment? Look, something that's been raging for the last five years, and particularly in the last 12 months, is uh, youth suicide. Uh, men's suicide rates over or under the age of twenty five is the highest in the western world. It's not something that we should take lightly. Um, anxiety, depression, fear uh, these are readily normal existence things that men have on a regular basis that we actually need to engage with more often. Sometimes our elder male colleagues and our younger blokes don't talk so well. Um, we come from different generations and we need to heed that support for each other.
0: Well, given that this is the age stage, of course, and we're talking to a slightly older demographic, we're encouraging them as well. I mean, culturally, there might be a tradition where they are a little bit reticent about speaking to one another as well. they got to change that, huh?
1: Mental health is important for all of us. And as we go through these, uh, you know, generational changes, I'm sure our older colleagues underappreciate the challenges that are there. But how they cope with them is different to how the younger blokes might cope for them now. Um, even as we get older, we sometimes feel like we're not needed in the community, but we're probably needed more often than most, if nothing else. And just for that resilience and that support and that learned ear, that experience is highly relevant. Sadly, there is, uh, as I said, a huge epidemic of young males uh, losing their life uh, to suicide and risk prevention that can be changed.
0: What, what about in the older de- demographics? So we see any trends there as well?
1: Oh, as people get older, they, they tend to, uh, wives find their own way and males begin to be, get isolated in their current genre. And they too can suffer depression or anxiety or fears as their families grow and move on to other things. Um, males are really important people in our communities and we really need to engage on a regular basis. I mean, just here next to the studio, we've got the wonderful men's health club that really should be running out there. The men's workshops that are around all over, uh, the peninsula. People should be engaging as best they can just to have a regular sausage with their mates. So it's a community engagement and uh, basically just getting into that sphere,
0: getting down to your doctor and making sure that you're known to him, and uh, it's going to help you and increase
1: probably your life expectation. Get a check-up and don't be afraid to check in on a mate. I mean, this is what blokes do really well, and we need to engage it readily. If the, someone is having any suicide thoughts or any da- depressive actions, I do encourage them to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Um, but readily, get involved with your mates. Get involved with a group. Can't see you, Doctor. Damien
0: Flinley, thank you very much indeed. Always appreciate uh, you dropping by the studios, Damien. Always good to see you. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Age Stage reporter Damien Flinley. That's uh, it for another week, I'm afraid, of the Age Stage. I'm Brendan Tover. Thanks to our special guest, of course, Dr. Kay Patterson, the Age Discrimination Commissioner. And not, of course, forgetting our intrepid medical reporter Damien Flinley. Thanks to our sponsors, Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. I am Brendan Telford, the H-stage. Returns in seven days' time. Speak to you then. Stay safe.